0: chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years, and then she died in Kerith Arab, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and weep for her. then Abraham got up from the morning, mourning his dead wife, and said to his sons of Heath, who are Canaanites, I am temporary settler among you. Grant me ownership of the burial site among you, so that I may bury my dead. And then we enter into this huge negotiation. They're like, no, 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 we'll get the land for free. And Abraham's like, no, 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 I want to buy it. Okay, well, if you buy the cave, you also got to buy the land. Well, okay, well, I'll pay this. No, no, no. And you, part of this, is, this is just how people back then negotiate. They pretend that they're going to offer it to you for free. Now, what they really want is this. You wonder what's going on with the sons of Heath, that there's all this back and forth and kind of stuff, and they sound like they want to give it a gift, but then you realize they don't really want to give it as a gift, they sound like they want to sell it for a really cheap price, but then they offer, they want even more, and a couple of things are going on. One, this shows you the authenticity of the story, because this is really how they negotiate. What they do is they start off by trying to offer it to you for free, because what is a big part of this culture is a debt-oriented culture. And so they offer it to Abraham for free and he takes it. Now Abraham is indebted to them and they own him to a certain point. And so this is a way of owning somebody without really truly enslaving them. Abraham's too powerful for them to really be able to enslave him as a servant. But if they can indebt him into to them, then he owes them, then that gives them power over him. But Abraham knows that. And he doesn't want it. And so he wants to pay for it. So then they want to sell the cave and the land. Well, part of the reason is Abraham knows that if he takes the cave but doesn't get to the land, then he still owes them certain pays, because he has to pay them taxes and rent and all that kind of stuff for this cave, and he doesn't want to get into that. But they don't want to offer him the, just the cave because if you sell part of your land according to Hittite laws, then you're expected to pay taxes on that land. But if you sell all of the land, then the new owner has to pay the taxes. So why pay taxes on land that you only partially own? And so there's this real complicated negotiation thing going on. But the other thing that you notice is that Abraham just, he's mourning. He just wants to bury his wife. And they're using that too because they know he's less likely to negotiate when he's mourning and he just wants to get his wife buried and so they can charge a higher price. And so this is typically how they operate, where they act like they're your friend and they want to give you a great deal, but they're really just trying to gouge you in the process because everybody's just looking out for themselves. And so it shows that relationship here that even though in one instance we've got a Bimelech who wants to become a part of a treaty with Abraham, and the same moment other people still see Abraham as a foreigner. And they still see him. And so what these two things show is it shows that God is rewarding and bringing blessing to other people as they see Abraham, God working through Abraham, want to be a part of that. But at the same time, it's reminding you that the promises still have not been fulfilled. He is still seen as a foreigner that they want to gouge in some negotiation. And so it's still not technically his. And in the end, Abraham buys the land for more than what it's worth, and now we're two steps closer to occupying the land because now he has a well and a little parcel of land that he can bury his wife in. But that's also important, too, because you have to understand the ancient way of thinking. Now, yes, Abraham is a believer now. He's not going to think like a pagan so much. But I think we know, as even though you've been a Christian for a long time, you still can't help thinking like an American. We're still a product of our culture. And so the reality is to be buried in the land means to have blessings. To not be buried in the land is not to receive the blessings of that God. The gods literally cannot bring you into the afterlife if you're buried in a land that they don't control. Now, Abraham has come to realize that his God controls everything. And no matter where he is, God can still operate. But at the same time, Abraham wants to bury his wife in the land that God has promised him because that land is where the blessings are. And he wants his wife to be part of those blessings. And so it could be symbolic. He could be thinking literally. We'll never know what he's thinking. But that's the idea. And we see this with Joseph. When Joseph tells his brothers, I'm going to die in Egypt and they're going to bury me. But you make sure that God promised that we'll come back to Canaan, that you dig up my bones and bring them back. And 400 years later, we're told in Exodus that they dug up the bones of Joseph and they brought them back to the land. Because being buried in the land is that important to them being a part of the promises and blessings and so this shows you that we now have somebody dying but when they're being when they're dying they're not being buried in the land of the Canaanites they're being buried in the land that God gave Abraham and it might be a tiny little piece but that's God's land to Abraham that Sarah's buried and Abraham will later be buried in and Isaac will later be buried in and Jacob will later be buried in and that's the point, that they're being buried in the land that God promised them. And even though they have not received the promises and their life, they have been buried in the land of the promises, which is otherwise why Hebrew kicks in and says, why would Abraham follow a God that did not give him the promises in his own life? Because he was looking forward to a greater land, and which means that Abraham has seen his wife's dead womb resurrected, and he believed that his son could be resurrected, which means Abraham expects to be resurrected into this land one day. Why did he follow God who never gave him the land? Because he expected to be resurrected one day and given this land. And the burial is his faith saying, I believe that this land is ours even in death. And that point is what Jesus makes too when he says, why does God say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God is not the God of the dead. Therefore, Abraham must still be alive and his resurrection. And so this shows you that we're a little bit closer to those promises being fulfilled with this whole negotiation for the land. Chapter 24. Now, Abraham was old. Now, remember, Abraham is going to live 75 years longer after Sarah's death. He was well advanced in years, and Yahweh had blessed him in everything. And Abraham said to his servant, the senior one, and his household, who was in charge of everything, and he had, and put his hand under his thigh, so that I may take you solemnly promised by Yahweh. Now, this is where it gets a little uncomfortable. So, Abraham is old. He's, not, he's close to dying, And he thinks, it's time for my son to get married. Now notice how Abraham is actively seeking out the marriage of his son. Yet Isaac is not going to actively seek out the marriage of his son. He's passive. He's going to make his sons get their own wives. Where Abraham will get the wives for him. And Jacob will even negotiate wives for his sons. But Isaac is passive. And so you need to see that for that preparation that's coming. Now, Abraham has his servant put his hand under his thigh, and the Hebrew word there is that the servant is actually touching his genitals. You're thinking, this is uncomfortable and weird. Now, one of the things that we talked about, the significance of El Shaddai and circumcision, all that kind of stuff. This just shows you that they have a completely different worldview on this kind of stuff than we do. And remember, they live in the ancient world. Their, their bubbles aren't as quite as big as ours in their sacred space. I'm not saying that's right and we're wrong or vice versa. I'm just saying it is. Okay, I kind of like this, my bubble. <laughs> I don't really want that one. Um, when we get to, the other thing they would do is like you get married, and on the first day of the wedding, you, it was seven-day marriage, or a seven-day wedding, not a seven-day marriage, a seven-day <laughs> wedding. And they would have the wedding celebration on the first day, say their vows, They'd go into the tent, and they would consummate the marriage, and they'd come out and celebrate six more days with the family. Well, when they went in, the family would stand outside the tent. And then they would bring the sheets out to prove that she was truly a virgin. And when they saw that, they would all be like, Yay! And they would clap and celebrate. It's like, yeah, I don't like that form of a wedding. So their understanding of this kind of stuff is way different than ours. And so the whole point of him putting his thigh is this is intimate. And being that close to his genitals is touching the circumcision, the Abrahamic promise. And the idea is that he's not just commissioning his son to get a wife. He's commissioning his son to bring a woman into the relationship that will further the Abrahamic promises. And the wife is all about the seed and the children, which is the loin and the thigh. And so the idea is that by putting his hand under there, this makes this vow Way more than just obeying Abraham, this makes this vow about the Abrahamic covenant and continuing the line that God has promised and the covenant of circumcision of being a part of the blessings of God. But the other thing too is to get that close and to t- touch that much makes this much more sacred, okay, a servant that is willing to t- go there, and then Abraham is willing to let his servant go there means that they're being bound together. That this is more just a, I promise. This is, there's a, I am really binding myself to you. And I promise. And I will fulfill this even if it kills me. And so when it just shows that they think differently than we do about this kind of stuff, it shows that this is more about the Abrahamic promise than just Isaac getting a wife. And it shows the sacredness of this vow that this servant is making. And going and finding a wife from Isaac. And so Abraham makes it clear you were not to find any wife among the Canaanites. They are an immoral, disgusting group of people. You need to go back to the land where I came from. Now, Mesopotamia is still pagans. they're still not that great. But we know from historical writings and we know from the way that everybody else talks about the Canaanites and Mesopotamians that Mesopotamians are far more better than any Canaanite. The Canaanites are just vile people. Or the Mesopotamians are probably more vile than what we're used to and not any of the people that we want our kids to hang out with. But nothing compared to like the Sodom and Gomorrah of the Canaanites. And so he sends them back there. But you have to remember too, it's not like Abraham can send him To go get married to some other Jew of faith. Because it's just Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac right now. So at least the next best thing is family. And family from a territory that's not as bad as all the people in this territory. So he sends them up there. And the servant goes. So the servant comes with this dowry to pay. And he comes to this well up in Mesopotamia. And you see this incredible faith of the servant, because what's the first thing the servant does when he gets there? He prays. He, he, he gets the overwhelming, oh my goodness, I'm in a foreign land and I've got to find a woman that is worthy of the Abrahamic covenant. And he immediately prays. And he asks for God to guide him, which shows that this servant's faith reflects Abraham's faith. And it shows that this bride is definitely going to be chosen by God. And so he prays for a test. And the test is this, the well. You don't notice how many people find their wives at the well? Hey, you got Isaac, you got Jacob, Moses. Wells are like water fountains, drinking fountains, the water cooler. That's where you go. Okay, so he goes to the well. And the idea is this is a community well. This is not a well like we think of of an underground river necessarily. This is probably more like a cistern. And a cistern is like a teardrop hole carved in the bedrock. And the three months of rain that they have fill it all up. And then they roll a stone over it. And the stone cuts it off from air and light. And without air and light, all the bacteria in the water dies. And then you're left with purified water. And then that water that they only get for three months becomes rain. Becomes all the water that you have for the rest of the year. So you ration it out. You protect that water. And water is gold in the ancient world. So he prays the woman who's willing to offer me a drink. But not just offer me a drink, but offer me as much as what I want. Usually you would offer water to a stranger because of the law of hospitality. But you wouldn't let that stranger just guzzle it down. But then he goes on and says, and even offers to water my camels. Now, camels can drink over 15 to 20 gallons of water, especially after these camels have made probably a two-week journey through the desert. And who knows the last time they drank. That doesn't mean that they always drink that much. It just means that they can. Which means if he's got several camels, which he does, and then you multiply that by 15, those gallons are going up big time when that's all the water you have for the entire year, for the entire village. So the woman, the test is this. A woman who's willing to come to a stranger and be that generous with the most valuable thing that she owns. That's the kind of woman that's worthy of the Abrahamic Covenant. Not just hospitality, but abundant generosity. And that says something about Rebecca, who grows up outside of the life of Abraham, and yet God has, for however reason, we have no idea what her story is, is brought her to the point where she's able to demonstrate that kind of generosity. And then it says, before he could even stop praying, behold, Rebecca came. Now, wouldn't you love if your prayers were answered that instantaneously? Okay? Sometimes they are, but most of the time they're not. And remember, God's not saying this is a standard of how he works all the time. He's just saying this is how he worked. And so she comes in, and he offers her a drink, and she does everything that he prayed. And it says that she just doesn't do it. The fact that she runs quickly back and forth in a good, cheerful mood. Suggests that she's not just serving generously and abundantly, but she's quick about it and she's cheerful about it. And that's incredible. And she's carrying these jars, jugs of water, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth for this camel as she's watching her checking account literally going down. And she's going to have to answer to her father and brother for why she spent so much on this stranger. Yet all she cares about is being generous to the stranger. And so she does it. So then he says, Hey, I'm here looking for a wife for my servant Isaac. The only thing that you know is Abraham, who you're related to, but you've never met Abraham. You don't know Isaac. You don't know who I am. Will you marry him? And she says, Yes. Because two reasons the reputation of Abraham has made it all the way up there. And when you get a better understanding of who Laban is, when we get to Jacob, you'll understand maybe why she wants to leave that life too. (laughs) But the reputation of Abraham has made it so far up that she is, this says something, she's excited to be a part of that family. And it also shows God at work. So he throws the the bronze bands on her arms and throws a nose ring in her nose, which is an interesting engagement ring, okay? and, so, and she runs back to tell her family. Now, notice that when she is first introduced, she's introduced as someone who sees a stranger and needs and provides for the stranger. When her brother Laban comes in the picture, the first thing he sees is the bling-bling, all the money, the jewelry, the wealth, the camels, her eye goes to a man in need. His eye goes to money, wealth. Her answer is, of course I'll be a part of this because of Abraham. He thinks, of course I want my sister to marry you because that's money. And they see two completely different things. And the Laban is very minor in the story. This is your first introduction to a Laban who's going to become very major In the life of Jacob. And you already know what kind of a man he is the minute Rebekah says, go up to Laban for protection. And you're thinking, yeah, right. And so Laban sees that. Now notice it's Laban who does the negotiations for the marriage. That's not uncommon for the older brother to start doing the negotiations because as the father gets older, he's going to pass more headship over to the son because it's better that your son operate in a headship way before you die when you can stand next to him and teach him to act like a king or to act as a patriarch and you teach him and you train him and you're there with him when he makes mistakes then to never allow him to make any decisions and then you die and now he's got to do this completely on his own and so it was not uncommon for a father to step back before he died and allow the son to actually start running the household and making all the negotiations and decisions so that you know what you're leaving behind when you die. And so Laban does most of the negotiations. And then you get this long story where the servant goes through the entire thing over again. You're like, okay, we already know that. We read that. But it's interesting that there's a couple things that are happening. One, that by repeating the story all over again, it emphasizes the fact that God is at work. By the narrator showing you that this is what happens, And then you kind of relive it again. It shows you that God is definitely at work here. But the second thing is, if you pay attention to the way the servant tells the story, he emphasizes the wealth of Abraham and the safety of the family more. With Rebekah, it was, come. But with Laban, it's like, he's (laughs) very wealthy, very respected, very powerful, very safe, lots of money for you. Because he knows what Laban is interested in. And he tells the story with a slightly different emphasis to perk the ears of Laban. Now, you can call that manipulative or you just can call that wise, but it doesn't matter. That is what it is. And so he phrases that way. But Laban is not quite ready to let her go. He wants him to stay several days. Maybe because he wants to negotiate for even more. We don't know. Maybe it's just the hospitality. But the servant feels the pressure Of getting back and fulfilling the promises. And so he tells them, Well, why don't we ask Rebecca? (laughs) And Rebecca, this is interesting, the same urgency that the servant feels who knows Abraham and Isaac, Rebecca feels that same urgency and says that she wants to leave immediately too. And so that says something about her willingness that Laban is wanting to draw out more, and the servant wants to get back. And that Rebecca joins a servant in her urgency to go to a land that she's never been to, to marry into a family that she doesn't know, and to be with a guy that she doesn't know, shows her excitement and her desire to be a part of this family that you wouldn't normally see from a girl who has no idea what she's getting into. And so all this keeps pointing to the fact that God has chosen Rebecca. And that where you might doubt whether Rebecca is a part of the covenant, being a woman who has never experienced God, this removes all those doubts. And so you see the hand of God and the story through the repetition. And so on their way back, in the distance, she sees a man coming out of the tent, and she says, Who is that? And the servant says, That's my master Isaac. She immediately drops the veil over her face, meaning that, The kind of veil, not like your stylistic veil of America, but more like the burqa of what the Muslim women wear, that you would only see the eyes of that, that mask her face completely. And she puts that on her, and he knows it says that he takes her and puts her in the tent of Sarah. Now, if they were going to immediately consummate the marriage, he would have brought her into his tent. But the fact that he puts her into the tent of Sarah means that she... This says two things. One, they aren't consummating the marriage until after they're married. But the fact that it says he put her into the tent of Sarah and then they are married and then they consummated it suggests how quickly that was, but it also shows that it was done the right order. But the other thing that it shows is by putting her in the tent of Sarah, it shows the narrator's telling you that she's the new Sarah, that she is the woman who, just as Isaac is the chosen child of Abraham, who will continue Abraham on. We already know that. That's been developed for a long time. But the fact that Rebekah goes in the tent of Sarah means that now Isaac and Rebekah are the new Abraham and Sarah. They are the Abrahamic covenant now. They are the Abrahamic covenant. And then it says that Isaac is comforted in his mother's death because now he is married. And there's this idea that now Lot has been removed, Ishmael has been removed, there's treaties now with the surrounding nations that gives him protection from the Canaanites, which we know doesn't really matter because God is ultimately sovereign, that he's passed the test of killing his son. And now that Isaac has Sarah, Abraham can die knowing the promises are truly protected. And they will go on. And that's the point of this story is that even though there's no kids yet, their promises are continuing on through this marriage. Now chapter 25. Abraham had taken another wife named Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, Jachsun, and Midan, and Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And son became the father of Sheba, and then we go on with the genealogy. And then he marries So he remarries Keturah, and we're given lots of these sons. Now, here's the weird thing. We don't know where this happens chronologically. Did he marry Keturah before Sarah died, or did he marry her after Sarah died? Now, that shouldn't threaten you because he's already become a polygamist by marrying Hagar, so what's another woman? But the chronology seems to suggest that most scholars seem to think that that the only reason that Keturah is being wait to be mentioned is not until after Sarah's dead. So he wraps up Sarah and gives that genealogy before he goes to the other wife and gives that genealogy. But a lot of scholars believe that Keturah might have been married to Abraham before Sarah's death. Now, ultimately, we don't know. But if it's true, then Abraham shows another polygamous marriage on top of Hagar. But the other thing that this does is two things. Midian Keturah does, says two things. Actually, it says three. First, we're introduced to one of the sons as Midian. And Midian is important for us to know because Midian, the Midianites, is the family that Moses is going to marry into. And so now it develops the idea of who Moses is going to marry. So remember, we got Lot's kids, Abnon and Moab. Because there are going to be significant nations attacking Israel throughout the Bible. But now we're introduced to Keturah and the son. So this shows that when Moses is marrying into the Midianites, that's not necessarily a bad thing even though they're not Jews because they are descendants of Abraham. And so they're indirectly a part of the Abrahamic covenant because of that. The other thing that it shows is that Abraham truly is becoming a father of multiple nations. Because these kids are all going to grow up to become their own nations. And between the Ishmaelites and the Midianites and now the Israelites, there are multiple nations coming out of Abraham directly, which shows God honoring that. But the other thing, too, is these are just more sons, the threat and the promises of Israel. And they will become threats to the promise of Israel in the future. And so the reality is, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Is it just is? Is it mixed? We have no idea. The reality is, it is life and in some ways it is fulfilling the promises of God of becoming multiple nations. It's showing that Moses is not necessarily totally in the wrong for marrying a Midianite, but the other thing is it does show that there's more competition for the promises of God, which can be a good thing because the whole point of Israel was to bring all the nations into Israel, but it can also be a bad thing if they're not joining Israel but trying to take it from Israel. Does that make sense? Multiple nations are not bad, if they want to participate with Israel. But the multiple nations can be bad if they want to compete and take from Israel. And so the reality is, this is Abraham. Before Sarah, death, after, we don't really know exactly. The narrator doesn't attempt to resolve this. Everything he owned, Abraham left to his son Isaac. But while he was still alive, Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them off to the east. So this is important. Abraham shows that Isaac truly is the firstborn head child, that he is going to inherit the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to become the head of the tribe. He inherits all of Abraham's possessions. But Abraham also shows that his other sons are just as important to them because he kind of gave his inheritance to them gradually over time. So he is giving gifts and inheritances to his other sons. But when he dies pretty much everything is left to Isaac. So his sons get all their inheritances before Abraham dies, but the rest is left to Isaac when Abraham dies. And in that way, Isaac gets... The, the firstborn title brings two privileges with it. One, it means that you're the head over all of those in the tribe or the family or the clan, however big your family is. And the second thing it does is it gives you a double land inheritance. Or double, And what it means is if you have three sons, then you divide your inheritance into four pieces of the pie, and you give each son one piece of the pie, and you give the firstborn two slices. And so you always, typically, it doesn't mean every father does it this way, but typically you would divide your your inheritance up into one more slice than the kids that you have, and that kid gets two. Now one of the things is, is if he's going to be the head of a tribe taking care of so many people, He's obviously going to need more possessions because he's taking care of not just his family, he's taking care of a tribe. And the other reason is he's also responsible for being the kinsman redeemer to people in need. And so if one of your tribal people loses their land or loses their money, you're responsible for redeeming them financially. So he doesn't just start off with more money because dad likes him more. He starts off with more money because he's taking care of a much bigger family than just immediate wife and kids. And so that's the so it's it's headship as far as well as responsibility, and so by this he's showing that Isaac does get the double land inheritance. So Abraham is obedient to God by doing that, and so then Abraham is buried in the same place that um, his wife is, and then we're given the, the genealogy of Ishmael. And so that genealogy of Ishmael does two things. It wraps up the story of Ishmael brings him to an end, but also shows that this genealogy proves that God is honoring his promises to Ishmael. So right now in these last couple of chapters, what we have is a lot of threads being wrapped up. And God is showing through these genealogies, through these inheritances, through these purchases of land, through the burial of people and through the marriages that God is fulfilling His promise. That when Abraham dies, yes, he is not dying with the land totally in His possession as a great nation, but he is dying with enough evidence to suggest to him that God is honoring His promises and will continue on in promise. And that's the point of all these like technicalities and legal statements that are kind of going on here. Any questions? comments. All right, I know we moved a lot faster tonight, covered a lot more chapters, and partly that's good because it's taking me longer than I thought to get through this. And then part of it too is that some chapters are just easier to move through and have less. And I think you're going to find that we're going to start picking up a lot more speed just because we're kind of defined a lot of the culture. The, The first part of this book takes a long time because we're being introduced to a brand new culture. And even though we do know God, there's, there's still this God is so... I hope that you're realizing that God is way bigger and way cooler than what you thought. And, and part of that is, one, we don't really truly understand the Bible like we think. But two, it's not really a negative against you either. Is not studying enough. Part of it is just that God is a mystery. He's unfathomable. And there's always, even I, I teach this every single year. And every year I teach it, I have an aha moment, like, oh, my gosh. And you think, like, how did I miss that? I teach this verse by verse, and I teach it. I just don't read it. But it's just because I wasn't ready for that, and I needed other dots. And, and God, there is no end to the depths of God that can be explored. So a part of it is, is it will take longer in the beginning because so, this is such a new world to a lot of people has to be unpacked. But now that we're getting more familiar with the world and the, the stories and the characters, things start moving faster. And even the narrator moves faster. He, he explains fewer things. Even God, as I already mentioned, will operate less and less and less as we get deeper in Genesis. And it becomes more of the characters because we should know God by now. We don't need God as much now because we've kind of gotten used to the culture and God and now we can just kind of read it And now when we get to the Jacob story, which we're going to start next week, God kind of just expects you to be able to figure this stuff out on your own. And the same way that Abraham was able to figure out a resurrection on his own, you should start figuring out whether Jacob is doing the right thing or not on your own. You should start figuring out whether this is God or not involved in this situation. And so this kind of becomes graduate level when we get to Jacob. Can you see God at work? And can you make accurate evaluations of who Jacob is without the narrator constantly telling you all the time? And so the narrator will start moving faster and just going through the story because you should know things well enough. I'm not saying you should know it perfectly, but you should know it well enough that you should be able to see God at work and to evaluate things. So we will begin to pick up speed and things will be moving faster. But there'll still be chapters like 22 and others that we'll slow down on and unpack because there's a lot there.